congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we look at this passage in Romans 11, we've been slowly working our way through Romans, and we've been spending a little bit of time here with this section, recognize in this olive tree, this olive tree example or, or image that Paul, Paul gives us, he shows us kind of the functioning of the way God's people work in history, which I've, at least as far as sermon titles concerned, have called the shape of covenant life. Uh, the, the life of the covenant, the life of people that God has called out of the world unto himself, this covenant people, what's the nature of that life? How does it work within the church? How does it work within the people of God? And that's what Paul tells us here. He gives us the example of the, the grafting in and the cutting out and, and the belief and unbelief and all these things that go on within the people of God and how God uses that to bring forth, finally, his purified people in the end. At the end, this process, this covenantal process of grafting in and cutting out the faithful, as grafting in the faithful, those who believe, and cutting out those who don't believe, God brings about the salvation of the elect. That's how he does it. And then the ministry, of course, of that church to the world, to herald the gospel and the good news to those outside the covenant people of God, that they should come into the covenant people of God, receive the sign of that covenant, whether it be circumcision of the old covenant or or baptism in the new and then operate within this covenant as it goes on. Right? That's, that's the way it works. We, we oftentimes think of individuals individually getting saved and united to Jesus Christ, and that's kind of the end of it. And certainly individual people are united to Christ by faith. That's no question about that. But they're also united to the church, to the body of, of believers, and they get brought into the functioning of the way it works. So if someone's converted in, praise the Lord, they come in. But once they're in, they're in. And then the functioning of the covenant goes along with their children and the way they disciple and all that sort of thing. The olive tree has its functioning, and as someone's grafted into the olive tree, they start to partake of the way the olive tree goes. They start to partake of the sap and the goodness and the fat of the olive tree. And that's what we're talking about. That's, that's the shape of covenant life. What is that olive tree life? What does it look like and how does it function? We talked about it a bit last week, talking about uh, grafting in and cutting out, and with that, I'll just start there and kind of and, and move forward as we go, but one image I want to have in front of you is, before we get moving is something that we see maybe in evangelism quite often, but I think we see it in lots of areas of Christian life, which is gimmicks versus the power of God. Human contriving to get people to do things, you parents know what I'm talking about because you're constantly manipulating your kids to get them to do things, right? Uh, versus the power of God that works on the inside of people that causes them to do things. Right? So we can deal with people in all ranges of how we deal with people, and we can manipulate, we can try to do our things, we can use gimmicks and things like that to try to cajole people or move them around where we think they ought to be. And whatever, as far as that goes. But that's not the same thing as the power of God at work in a person that compels them, that moves them, that changes them. Well, we can't. We can't move and compel and change each other in that same way. And that goes from evangelism. You can think of, like, evangelistic techniques uh, that are quite silly and just, you know, meant to uh, manipulate people into making their decision for Christ and so on, uh, versus the, the heralding of the gospel, the, the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the King of kings, to whom we all must bow and to whom we all will bow, and the Holy Spirit of God changing a person's heart to receive that and, and come into Christ Jesus and trust Him and be baptized into Him and begin to live in Christ, this olive tree um, that we're talking about. That goes for discipleship as well. 
as we grow in Christ, as we kind of interact one with another and, and help each other grow in Christ, we can rest in our own kind of gimmicks and work, but we can also, and, and I don't mean all of our work is gimmicks. Sometimes we make stuff up and it's gimmicky and, and silly. Sometimes it's faithful work and being obedient to God as we, as we disciple and train and, and sharpen one another. But either way, it's the power of God that makes the difference. It's God showing up in power to change and continue to mold people after his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, that goes all the way, of course, to the life of the body, the Christian church and how it functions. And what we're looking for is to be faithful to God and seek his power. Not to kind of make our own power, to try to manipulate or do things in our own strength, but to be faithful to God and seek his power. This week on Facebook, uh, I had a, an old friend of mine, in fact, a, a brother, a, a friend's older brother, who took umbrage with something I said, I can't even quite remember what, um, but into the conversation, he finally said, I made the comment kind of just like that. So the church's job is to be faithful to her Lord, faithful to his word, and go from there. He says, well, good luck getting funded. <laughs> that was his comment. Good luck keeping the bills paid. I'm like, well, the cattle on a thousand bills are God's. Right? God has all of this. It's all God's. He's called us not to success, not to have as many people in the church as we can, uh, not to have so many marked down as conversions for our, you know, our evangelistic campaign, or have our numbers, or have all the things that we like in the flesh, but to trust God. And sometimes trusting God is difficult, because we like to reach in and manipulate people. We like to reach in and say, grow up already, or come to Christ Jesus, repent of your wickedness, and, and come to the Savior. But we can't do that, can we? We can tell them. We can plead with them. But it's the power of God that makes the difference. It's when God moves, that's when things happen in people. And that's what we're looking at this morning in the life of the body, in the life of the olive tree, into which we have been grafted. We outsiders. Right? I want to emphasize that because doesn't it seem like Paul's kind of emphasizing that here in his text? Like, you guys are wild olive shoots. Ikipoo. We don't want that, but God brought you in. And, and then he's also cut out some people that were there and brought in. So how do we make sense of all this? And of course, all this is in that broader context of Paul saying, well, why have the Jews rejected the gospel? And why have the Gentiles come flooding in? What's going on here? And Paul says, well, that's the election of God. This is the work of God. This is God putting a partial hardening upon the Jews until the Gentiles should come in. And then all Israel will be saved, as we'll examine as we go later. Okay. So from gimmicks to power of God, or the, the ways in which we operate, whether gimmicky or, or faithful, but it's not in us. The power to change isn't in us. The power to change is in God, who gives that power and, and meets us. So first, quickly, the grafting. Apostasy. We've talked about apostasy. We say apostasy is the leaving of the faith, the departing from Jesus Christ and his church, the denial of divine revelation. Has God really said a question that rings in your head. Remember reading that somewhere? Has God really said? That's the question of the apostate who answers it, yeah, no, not really. Right? Where the faithful says, yes, God has said. God has said this. And even if it doesn't quite make sense to us, in, in other rationales, it might make more sense to us, God has spoken. Right? So apostasy is leaving that, denying the faith, and the denial of revelation in particular the revelation of God's own Son. That's kind of what's central in the, in the text here. The, the historical olive tree of Judaism, of the covenants and the promises and the worship, and all the things that Paul says at the beginning of Romans 9, 
the people who kind of kept the outward appearances rejected the Messiah. The Jews rejected their Messiah. That's their apostasy. They've rejected that revelation because the Scripture says, God in many ways and at different times has revealed himself to the prophets of old. But here in these last days, he's revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And the unfaithful Jew says, no, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. They hang on to the trappings. They hang on to those covenants and, and, and those things, but they lose the heart of it because Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known the Father. If we deny the Lord Jesus Christ, we deny the Father who sent him. So that's the apostasy of the Jews that we're talking about. And then the conversion. The flip side of that, apostasy is the kind of falling away from the forms of faith and the, the continuity and the structures and the covenant and all that stuff. And Christ Jesus in the very center. Apostasy is falling away from that in unbelief. But the Gentiles, the outsiders, the Ikipu, wild olive branches, they're in faith being brought in. It's not because they became so Jewish and they started getting circumcised and keeping on the law and doing all the things the Jews did. That wasn't it. They came in as Gentiles, simply trusting in the one whom God has sent. That great son of Abraham, that great son of David, that great son of Israel. Jesus, the Christ of God. And so they are brought in. They are coming to faith. They are receiving the revelation. They are resting in Jesus Christ. This is how the church goes. This is how the people of God have gone, or have gone, from the very beginning. There's a tree, and that's the image. So again, what is the tree? Is it like John 15 we talked about, where Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, my father's the vine dresser, or the husbandman, and any branches in me that don't bear fruit, he cuts out, and any branches in me that do bear fruit, he prunes, so that they bear more fruit. So Jesus there, in that analogy in John 15, as he used it, is the vine, and we are the branches. But that's not the case here. The case here, I mean, Christ is the centerpiece of all of it. He is the cornerstone. But here, the, the tree is this long-standing tradition of covenant and God's people, right? Not just, there, there's, there's the world, the lost, and then there's the people of God. And out of the people of God, God uses this cutting in, uh, grafting in, cutting out to disciple his people and to redeem the elect. So the people of God are a, a, a place away from the world. You don't go into ancient Israel, into a synagogue, and say, hey, this is just the world. They say, no, the world's out there. We're the people of God. You walk into a church in the New Covenant and say, well, we're the people of God. We're not the world, right? The world's out there. It's opposed to God. We're here. We've been marked off by God to be his people. That's what covenant is. It doesn't mean we all have, we're all the elect, and we all have a saving faith. It doesn't mean that. The church has never thought that, that the church is only those who have saving faith and are truly elect. We recognize the scripture talks about election, and it will come to pass. Every single elect person will be saved. Every one of them. At, the, at that great day when Jesus assembles his, you know, the innumerable company, every elect person will be there, and none but the elect will be there. But the process here along the way is messier. Right? The process in the church, in this olive tree, is messier. And it involves cutting out. And it involves grafting in. It involves unbelief. There's unbelief there. And if that unbelief persists, God cuts it out. But if the unbelief doesn't persist, God's able to graft them back into it again. Right? So this olive tree is an image for us of what the people of God are in this world. We're an organic, bound-together company or, 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 or body of people that God addresses differently than the world. God's given promises to this group of people. He's given signs, sacraments to this group of people. He has not given those to the world. 
Flip over to Hebrews chapter 10, real quick. This uh, will get into our warning passages, uh, for this is clearly a warning passage. You, you read that or heard it, right? Uh, there's, there's, a, there's an articulation of the, what God has done to the unfaithful, unbelieving Jews, cut them out, and then a threat to Christians that God will do the same thing to them if they get haughty and don't believe. So clearly a warning passage. Here's another one in Hebrews chapter 10, one of the greats. Um, and just as a, a comment on the Hebrews text specifically, and probably on all of the warning texts in the New Testament, they're on the cusp of the destruction of Jerusalem. They're on the cusp of the destruction of the temple. So if they're going to go back, like in the book of Hebrews, for instance, they're going to go back to their Judaism, they're going to go back to Jerusalem just at the time when the axe is going to fall. Just at the time the fire is coming to Jerusalem to burn it. Just at the time when Jesus said not one stone will be left upon another. It's just the wrong time to go back. Right? That's, kind of, that's, that's I think, in anticipation um, in the book of Hebrews, but the New Testament entirely. Start, start reading in verse 26. So here's a warning passage, maybe similar to the one that we were just reading. We'll see, we'll see again how it's a warning to those in covenant with God. Not the world, but those who are drawn near in covenant. And they're being warned. Get the right passage here. 11, oh, I'm sorry, 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, which I think is to say, if we go on being Jews and going back to Judaism after we, after we received and understood, Messiah has come. Think of it that way. If we go on sinning deliberately after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies, uh, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's appearing to the Old Covenant saying, hey, listen, if someone denied the, the, the gods under two or three witnesses, they were put to death. How about the New Covenant? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What a warning passage. Does your heart quake when you read something like that? I hope so. I certainly hope it does. Even if as much to say, just like Paul says in Romans 11, to fear. But not to fear, lest we be lost, but to fear the living God. To fall into the hands of the living God is indeed a fearful thing. And here, this particular passage is addressed to those who are in covenant with God, who are tempted to trample the Son of God underfoot, and the covenant by which he was sanctified, set apart. Now, you don't get to walk away from the Bible and say, hey, it's just you're either elect or reprobate, and that's the only categories we operate in. Individuals either are elect of God or they're reprobate, they're not elect of God, and it's, that's, that's true, but we don't, of course we don't have the list. What we do have is covenant, the way God has made this olive tree to work. And sometimes there's unbelief in the olive tree. Sometimes people, it's in the branches, in the olive tree trample underfoot the very Son of God and despise the covenant by which they're sanctified. And outrage this the Holy Spirit. That's what Christians do. That's what people in covenant do. That's the threat. Don't do that. 
Now, some Calvinists, uh, little air, air scare quotes, well, the air quotes are scare quotes, but want to say, well, that's hypothetical. That doesn't really happen to anybody. Right? That, that, those warning texts are, are warnings to the reprobate, to be sure. Okay, well, good enough. Um, but not to the elect, because none of this could ever happen to the elect. And I think, no. No, that's, that's playing fast with the text. That's letting your kind of electing theology, which is true, guide this text in a way it shouldn't be. But, ye Presbyterians, if you have a doctrine of covenant, you have a way to understand the way the Bible talks. This, this, this warning of apostasy doesn't mean that the elect can be lost. The one who believes doesn't believe anymore. Right? It gives us a place to operate saying, yeah, there's a covenant, the people of God, the people of faith, and sometimes there are unfaithful branches in there. In fact, oftentimes there are unfaithful branches in there, and God disciplines that body. He cuts people out of Christ. He cuts people out of the covenant. And you might say, well, if they're getting cut out, then where's your perseverance of the saints? And of course, we can just say like what John says as we come down to it from 1 John chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour. Now remember, John wrote a long time ago. But it was the last hour when he wrote. Think about that. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So if you're, if you're looking for Antichrist as a personal figure sometime in your future, you might be mistaken. Because John says in his time that Antichrist is active, and many Antichrists have come. And who are these Antichrists? He goes on to tell you. But he says, therefore we know that it is the last hour, because these Antichrists have come. They went out from us. These antichrists, these, these teachers of false doctrine about Christ Jesus. Say he didn't really come in the flesh. It's just a mirage. It's a spiritual reality, not, not whatever perversions of the doctrine of the incarnation these antichrists are teaching. He says, they went out from us. That is, they came out of the church. They came out of our midst, right? But, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They came out from us, but they weren't of us. So we have at least a distinction of two things. There's a way in which someone can go out of the church, thus having been part of the church in order to go out of it, but not having been with it as far as the spiritual substance of the thing. Right? You can be a part of the people of God and not partake in the substance of Jesus Christ, who is salvation, who is the grace of God, who is the redemption of God. You see? There's, there's, what, this, what this body is, is called the church, or Israel, or the olive tree. People get cut out of the olive tree. They get cut out of Jesus Christ, just like Jesus says in John 15. And here we have uh, the example of, what, or the instruction of what John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, what? They would have remained with us. Why is that? Because the sovereign God, when he works in someone's heart and draws them in Christ Jesus, keeps them. Yet people still go out of the church. People are still condemned going out of the church as apostates and so on. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. So there's a way to be of us and not of us at the same time as a, as a Christian church. You can go out as Antichrist, preaching heresies about Jesus Christ, and still be out of the church. But never out of election, because those who go and preach that doctrine and die in that falsehood were never elect. If they were, they'd come back. They'd come, right? Uh, God will redeem his elect. The olive tree is the shape of covenant life. That's what Paul gives us. He doesn't say this new creation and the new covenant of the church functions entirely differently than the way Israel used to. Does it? 
It doesn't say on an individual basis is now how I'm operating and forget your kids too. Right? The Bible doesn't say that. It never says it. Baptists say it. Other Christians say it. But the Bible doesn't say it. Instead it says, no, this olive tree that's been going on for the, the love of the fathers and the election all the way back to Abraham, this thing's going on. And you Gentiles, you, olive, you, you wild olive branches have been brought into it. So there we have the grafting into and the warnings. The warnings that come along with being in the covenant. It doesn't make any sense if only those who are in covenant with God are the elect and that there be warnings to those who are in covenant with God. That they be cut out. Or as Paul says in, his, in the very same text we're looking at now. So as far as interpretations then of these warnings, we have this kind of what I call maybe a, a quasi-reformed or, or Calvinistic understanding of the hypothetical nature of these warnings. It's like they, it didn't really come to pass. I don't think that works. We also have another option, what we might call um, the Arminian mess, right? The, the he loves me, he loves me not. It's all on me. It's on my decisions. And, and I, if there's something Christian, if there's something that your pastor knows about himself and therefore about you, my mind is fleeting. My heart is weak. If I'm saved because of my grabbing onto Christ and keeping him, I tell you I'm lost. It's because of his grabbing on me and keeping me. And as he keeps me, I keep him. As he works in me to will and to do, I will and do. But I don't will and do apart from him working in me. The Armenian mess goes just the opposite direction. Say, no, it is all on you. God just left it up and then who wants it, come get it. Sue-wee. Come on and get it. And if you want to walk away, you walk away. Now the truth is, whoever wants to come, comes. But the reason they want to come is because God has worked in them. That they want to come. To Christ Jesus. Anyway, the Arminian mess that she loves me, she loves me not, with the warning passages works great. No problems. You can walk into Christ, walk out of Christ. The, the Hebrews 6 one proves too much, I think, because once they go, they're gone. And Arminian doctrine typically is, well, once you go, you're gone, but not really. You can come right back, um, which is actually closer to the Hebrew, the, the Romans 11 text. Anyway, I, you, can, you can poke around with that Arminian thinking or the semi-Pelagian thought or whatever else you want to call it, uh, but it's unfaithful. It's unfaithful to Scripture. It doesn't take into account the, the teaching, the express teaching about election and perseverance and things that we've gone through for the cans of Dort for months and months. Now, a third way of taking these, these warnings is as prophetic warnings to the body, the body of the church, the body of the people of God, to the olive tree. That it's, if, if you read through the prophets, do you ever read them warning Israel about their sin? And warning Israel that their covenant God who's made covenant with them will hold them accountable? Okay, well, this is just the same thing. It's just the same thing. A prophetic warning to the people of God, recognizing the people of God are this olive tree. And people get cut out. And people get grafted in by faith. Remember again, it doesn't say by works, because they're really super, like, works-oriented. They're, they stay in, though. It's by faith that we are grafted in. And it's because of unbelief that Jews were cut out. These prophetic warnings in the Scripture from Hebrews 10, Romans 11, you name it, there are a bunch of them. They are useful tools in the hand of God the Holy Spirit to sanctify the elect. These warnings, that's why I say, do you quake when you hear them? Do you worry when you hear the warnings of God when, when the Scripture says, don't be haughty, but fear, do you fear? Or do you say, nope, that's not for me. Perfect love, cast out all fear, don't fear. But God tells you to fear. Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
We praise his name because he is holy and he is consistent. He is faithful to himself and to his son, Jesus Christ, and we trust him. But God is scary. The reality of God is he is scary. He is God almighty. And one of the great weaknesses of worship in the Christian church is when we don't approach God as the almighty, as the one before whom we should fall on our faces in fear and in trembling, and then be lifted up in the, in the body of Jesus Christ, that God became flesh for us to lift us out of this. Not because God's not fearful, but because he is. Ask Jesus on the cross how fearful his father is. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a prophetic warning from a prophet to the people of God saying, you'll get cut out too if you do it like the Jews did it. If you reject Jesus, if you reject the revelation of God, if you turn your back on God, God will cut you out too. Now I want every one of you to listen. Because this is a warning from God to you. You members of the covenant. Fear God. Look to Jesus Christ, the only Savior of God's elect. Rest in Him, rejoice in Him, and follow Him. But make it a regular reality in your life to fear the Lord, to fear God Almighty, and recognize this not in your hands. God's called you to be faithful. God's called you to follow. You've got to do it. You've got to get up and follow. But the faithfulness is God's, which brings us to our last part. The, the, the power is God's. This is all God's power at work, both in the, in the prophetic warnings that are given to the body, to the olive tree, but also in their success. Right? When, when Christians, when the elect, hear that warning, and we're fearful, and we fall down before God and repent, is not a move toward our salvation, to our final salvation? You bet. The warnings of God function in the life of the elect, and also in the lives of the reprobate, who will generally ignore them and scoff at them. The reprobate will generally take the warnings of God, ignore them, or scoff at them. Search your own heart, Christian. What do you do with the warnings of God? When you read something like Romans chapter 11, we've read it over and over and over again here, do you fear? Or do you ignore? Or worse, do you scoff? Well, the world scoffs and ignores the people of God, hear the words of God, and receive them. And we tremble at the threats, and we receive the promises, just like Westminster tells us. Now, what's the warning here? Back to Romans 11. What's the warning? What's the issue going on here? I think it's slightly different than Hebrews. I think Hebrews is written to a bunch of converted Jewish Christians who are tempted to go back to Judaism right before the hammer falls. Okay? That's Hebrews. All of the New Testament, I think, is written before the hammer falls. We don't see 8070 except in the future in all of the New Testament. Okay, that's something important, because um, for the last, what, 150, 200 years, we got a bunch of egghead scholars say, oh, no, 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 no. Actually, the text of Ephesians was written in 1925, uh, or pushing it out hundreds of years beyond where it was written, and that was all you know, academic, wonderful stuff, and it's all bunk. It's all bunk, a bunch of academic, highfalutin bunk. Uh, but when you read the New Testament itself, when you, the, the, let me put it this way, the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple is the biggest thing to happen to Christianity after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit. It's that big a deal. And if it, were, if it had happened, it would be reflected as having, have, have, as, as having happened in the New Testament. But it's actually portrayed as something to happen all the time. So think about that. What's the warning then? In, in Romans chapter 11. Hey, you Gentile Christians, what's, what, do you, what are you going to struggle with? 
arrogance, pride. You're going to look at those Jews, their unfaithfulness, they're not believing in Messiah, and you're going to lord it over them. You're going to think much of yourself, aren't you? You're going to think you're sitting here, you know, middle class, whatever you got, all by your strength. You've done this thing. That's, that, that's a tendency. Now, Paul warns that way. He gives us the warnings. He says, um, God won't spare you either, in verse 21. If you, con- if you continue in Christ, great. Otherwise, you'll be cut off, in verse 22. And you stand or fall by faith or unbelief, in verse 20. The Gentile Christians, in verse 18, have a tendency to be arrogant. Arrogant toward the Jews who have been cut off. Now, let me just ask you a question. Not only in your own life, but just think of Christianity. Has Christianity been arrogant toward the Jews who were cut off? Just to ask the question, just to answer the question, if you know anything about the history of Christianity and Judaism. Christianity has been terrible to Jews. Not like Paul here, who weeps for them and says, I want them to come to Christ, and I have hope that they will. Christians have basically said, forget them. Or worse, burn them. Kill them. Get rid of them. They're pests. Are we following the advice, the uh, the command of the Apostle Paul, not to be arrogant against those who have been cut off? Not at all. The Christian church, and particularly the church of Rome, to whom this letter is written, the church of Rome, mind you, has been vastly arrogant, not obeying or believing the word of God. May that not be true of us. May we learn the lesson Paul gives us here, to be humble and fear. Fear is the antidote, then, of pride and of arrogance, which is the downfall of the Christian. That very thing, Paul says, will get you cut out of the covenant, just like the ones you look down your nose at. There's a real warning here for Christians to be not arrogant and haughty, but be humble. And even be humble before Jews. And check this out as we move on, that the, that the Jews, when they come back in, as they come back into Christ, it'll be a natural fit. We Gentiles are all wonky and weird getting in there. It doesn't work right. But God's making it work with us Gentiles. But as we look forward to the conversion of Israel and, uh, and the Jews back into Christ, that's a natural fit. And not only is it a natural fit, it's like life from the dead for the world, is what Paul says in our very passage. So, is there a hope for Israel? That's, the, that's kind of the whole thrust of, the, of this passage in Romans 9 through 11. Israel's rejected Christ. Are they, have they rejected Christ forever? Are they out of God's plan? May it never be. It's not over. So our little all-millennial idea that, oh, the Jews are done. It's all kind of this Jewish, Gentile, you know, union in one body. The Jews as the people are done. Don't believe the may it never be or the God forbid. No, he's not done. In fact, a partial hardening has come upon Israel so that the Gentiles should come in. And as the Gentiles come in, we provoke Israel that she should come back in. And so all Israel will be saved. Verses 22 and 23, though, back in Romans. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, that's the Jews, unbelieving Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, if they come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Again, this is all an issue of the power of God. The conversion of the Gentiles, the conversion of you, 
the conversion of your children, the conversion of the society, the conversion of people. It's all God's doing. It's all his power, including the Jews, to graft them back in. Verse 24, For if you were cut off from what by nature, what was by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, so he's saying, hey, you Gentiles, you think you fit in here really well, but you kind of don't. But who does? Who will fit in here well? Who, who really fills the bill? How much more will these, the natural branches, these unbelieving Jews, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Okay, so we Gentiles think we run the show, and the Jews are just second-rate at best. At best. Usually far, far, far below that. Paul says that's not the way it is. You Gentiles are second rate. You're wild olive branches that God grafted in by his grace into a Jewish olive tree. So don't get haughty against the Jews who don't believe. It's true they don't believe. It's true they've been hardened. It's true they're under the judgment of God. No question. But the same will be for you. If you decide to get prideful and haughty about it, God will cut you out too. And how much easier when it comes down to it for God to graft back in the natural olive branches into his tree. They'll fit back in easily. And all this is by the power of God. It's all God's power work, both to harden the Jews, to draw the Gentiles, which he's still doing. Here we are, right? Uh, But also, finally, to draw the Jews back in as well. Not as Jews and Israel and having their own nation and their own sacrifices and their own temple and all the old covenant stuff, as per dispensationalism, but into the new covenant itself that the Jews would repent and come into Jesus Christ, inheriting the glories of the new covenant, along with us, the wild olive branches who have been grafted in. In Education Hour, we've talked about the early centuries of Christianity, and I'd like to ask you, if you were a Christian in the year A.D. 64, when Emperor Nero says, oh, and by the way, now Christianity is outlawed, it's an illegal superstition. You may not practice it. If someone came up to you and said to you, hey, you know what? In a couple hundred years, the empire will be Christian, and the emperor himself will be a Christian. What do you think? What do you think, buddy? Say, so you're crazy. There's no way that's happening. This is the great world power against the church. But within two and a half centuries, it wasn't that way anymore. God had done a work, hadn't he? It took two and a half centuries, which to us back then is like a blink of an eye. We don't think it takes any time at all because it just happened back then. But by God's grace, by God's power at work in his people, in their faithful daily living, in their faithful weekly worshiping of the triune God, God overthrew that worldly power of Rome. It seemed impossible. It happened. Now we might think, well, what about this Jewish edifice? The, 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 the long-standing Jewish walls against Christianity and the falsehoods they teach. It seems impossible that that would come down. It's not impossible. All things are possible with God. What's impossible with men? It's impossible that Jews should convert themselves. You bet. Just like it's impossible that Gentiles should convert themselves. It's the power of God at work in both. And here we see that. So we should not ever despair, Christian, of the, of the salvation of anybody. God is powerful to overcome everyone and bring them in to his salvation in Christ Jesus if he calls them and wants them. So let me ask you this as a quick kind of wrap up to this point. How does the great power of God impact your eschatology? How you think of what's going to happen as the world develops and goes toward its end? Too often we think of our own impotence, our own inability to get things done, and our own weakness. 
and we read the Bible and we read history in terms of that, as opposed to reading the Bible and history in terms of the power of Almighty God to do whatever He wants among the hosts of heaven and the sons of men. So how does the power of God inform your understanding of eschatology? And how much does the weakness of the flesh inform your eschatology? Again, what we're looking for here, and what this all kind of comes down to, is just the power and plan of God. God's doing His thing. We're part of it. We're the Gentiles who were, again, far off. Nowhere near salvation. Nowhere near the state of Israel, the covenants, the promise, any of that. But God's brought us near. He's brought us into this olive tree. This olive tree that's been growing since the time of Abraham. But on the promises of God, on the covenant of God, the people of God in this world, God's brought us who were far off near in Jesus Christ. But he's warned us the same. He says, you see those branches laying down there? You see those synagogues of Satan where they don't worship the triune God, where they deny him, they deny Christ, they deny the revelation God's given? They're cut off from salvation. They're cut off from God. Watch out. Fear God because he'll cut you off too if you follow that way. Cry out to the Lord. God made it so I don't follow that way because maybe my heart is a tendency to have a bunch of arrogance toward whoever, right? The world and what they don't get and those silly, you know, BLM errors and uh, whatever else. So we kind of have our arrogance and we think we know better and all that kind of stuff. That's poison. That's spiritual poison to us. We need to be humble and fear, resting in Christ Jesus and his provision and what he's done for us in his power and his spirit. It's all about the power of God at work in us. So the power of God should inform our eschatological hopes. What we hope for in the future. The power of God should inform that as we think about it. The power of God should inform our reading of these warning passages. Romans 11. Fear. Let's God cut you off. The power of God has to be part of how we understand that. Not only the power to cut off and to condemn. Remember what Jesus says? You don't fear the guy who just take out your body. You fear out the God. You fear the God who can take out your body and your soul in everlasting hell. That's the one you fear. That's the words of Jesus. That's what we're talking about. The power of God should inform our reading of these warning passages, not only in, the, like, in the, the wild fury of God's wrath, which is unthinkable and scary, of course, but in the power of his redemption, even through those warning passages to draw the elect, to encourage the elect, to, get us, uh, to give us the gift of repentance. So the power of God should inform our reading of those warning passages Finally, the power of God should inform our understanding of the functioning of the covenant, the way God's made his body to work, the olive tree as it goes, the, the grafting in by the power and grace of God and the cutting out of this covenant by the justice and the power of God. So, Christian, to bring it all together, don't get haughty. Don't get proud. Don't think much of yourself. Because in the first place, this is all grace. It's all given to you. It's all gift. It's all God giving it to you. Therefore, there's no room for pride. Yet we find room for pride. We make it because we're prideful and sinful. But recognize that everything, both the life, the breath you draw, and the very salvation in Christ Jesus you enjoy, all of those are grace. They're all gift. And therefore, don't get haughty. But fear. Fear God. Fear is the antidote for arrogance. Fear God, body and soul, and hope. This this passage is a passage of hope. It's a warning, but it's a passage of hope. Wait and see what God will do. 
as he's calling the Gentiles in, as he's provoking the Jews to jealousy and draws them in, see what the power of God will do. We'll end here. You will say, Christian, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off. Why? Because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So I call you, Christian, in the name of Jesus Christ, not to unbelief, not to disregard the promises of God, not to disregard the revelation of God, but to press into it, to take God at His word, no matter what the world says, no matter what your heart says, to take God at His word and receive from Him salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's a matter of faith. That's a matter of reaching out and resting in Christ Jesus and trusting in the One and receiving that nourishing sap from the olive tree, the church, as we grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the ways in which we grow in Him is by faith, partaking in the supper. Coming and eating a little bit of bread and drinking a little cup and saying this is how we participate together in Jesus Christ, the King and the Savior of the body. So as we wrap this sermon up, don't get haughty, don't be prideful, but fear. And as we come to this table, fear the Lord and reach out and rejoice in the one He has sent. He's paid it all in Jesus Christ. He's drawn us near in Jesus Christ. He's given us everything for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. And here he gives it to us in a little bit of meal. An itty-bitty meal for us to feast upon Christ together. So, let's, uh, let's close in prayer.